What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. A great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim, we've got an in-depth conversation with uh, one of the real innovators in hip-hop. A guy, when he came out with his debut album in the late 90s, really changed the way hip-hop sounded. Uh, DJ Shadow. Absolutely. Fascinating stuff. Plus, Greg, we have reviews of the new albums from Lindsey Buckingham and Lady Sovereign, the UK rapper making her US debut. You've got a Desert Island jukebox pick. But first, we want to say welcome to a new affiliate, KPCC in Pasadena. Woohoo! <laughs> That is uh, Van Halen, of course. They are the most famous rock band ever out of Pasadena, California, without doubt. I know, Jim, that you were looking askance in that selection. I'm not the biggest Van Halen fan in the world. Well, at least that song was covered by the Minutemen. There I, you I, go. We would have played the Minutemen version, but the Minutemen are from Pedro, and, and that's not right. And we wanted to welcome Pasadena. We could have played an L.A. band, you know, but no, no, no. It's important to get the, you know, we're glad to be on on the West Coast now. We absolutely are. Southern California... Welcome to Sound Opinions World. Let's talk about some rock and roll news. I gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die. I'm a guy. Gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'm a Tuscan guy. Back when they thought Pink Polos are hurt the rock before Oh, Kanye West. Now, you know, you and I are both fans, Greg. And it's not because we're from Chicago. It's getting way. harder and harder to be a fan, though. Well, we remain love, a fan. We love the music. We have problems on occasion with the man. Kanye had another hissy fit, another public meltdown regarding the stupidest thing of all. I mean, here's a guy who's selling millions of records, being acknowledged around the world by his peers, other musicians, as one of the most creative forces in hip-hop today. As a producer, people are lining up to work with him, and it matters to him to get some little gold-plated trinket, you know, <laughs> at something as stupid as not even the MTV Video Music Awards in America, the MTV Europe Music Awards. As the awards were being announced last week in Copenhagen, Kanye was there. The best video prize goes to uh, Justice versus Simeon. It's a mashup called We Are Your Friends. Obviously, it hasn't even made any impact in the States. Kanye was extremely displeased by this <laughs> and bum-rushed the stage, and this is his outburst. Thank you! Oh, Kenyon. You won already! You won already! 
MTV Europe doesn't like black people. I think that might be part of the problem. I don't know. No, the no. award show loses credibility. You, you have to assume that the award show had credibility. In the first place. You know, Why does he care? I know. You know, we've both interviewed him from the beginning of his career. You sit there and you, you know, have got all this talent and things are going great for you in the world. Why do these prizes matter to you? And I think that hip-hop is so much about putting on the pose and strutting your stuff. I'm harder than you. I'm tougher than you. I'm sexier than you. And his way of playing to that world, I think, is, is to do this. But, you know, he just winds up looking petty. Oh, absolutely. Kanye West was not the only pop star last week to have a hissy fit in a public forum. Sir Elton John, on the stage of the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, was about to introduce this song when he melted down. We heard Richard Nixon say, Welcome to the USA. The common sense I sometimes lack Has opened up a seismic crack We've fallen in and I can't pull back And I guess we'll have to stay That's a song called Postcards from Richard Nixon uh, from Elton John's latest album, Captain and the Kid. And what Elton said on the stage of the uh, Nassau Coliseum was, I'm going to play a song, but I'm sure you haven't heard it yet because the Blankers haven't promoted it. And he was referring to his record company, Universal Records. My record label isn't doing anything to help. Blank Universal, they're useless. Here's a message to Universal Records. Please drop me. Just let me go somewhere else. That's like, geez, you know, Elton, did you ever stop to think for half a second that it's not that they are not promoting Captain and the Kid, but that it's yet another mediocre record from a guy who can no longer sing, who could never really write great songs unless he was working with Bernie Taupin. Why should anybody care about this record? I've seen a fair number of full-page ads for it in places. Yeah. So there's certainly universal money behind it. There's no singles on it, and there were no singles on the album that it was referring to, really. Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. This is a sequel to it 30 years later. Yeah. It is equally innervating, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's one of those albums that you just kind of go, well, that's nice, guys, the concept, but you guys weren't really about concepts. You were about singles. Give us some singles. And Elton should know that, of all people. I mean, he made a living off these glitzy 70s singles. He ain't writing them anymore with Bernie Taupin. Don't you wanna come? Friday one, twenty one, gonna be so much fun. Friday one, twenty one, that's what a party be. Friday one, twenty one, you can come if you want to, but you can never leave. Thirty one, twenty one. Prince is telling us that's where the party's going to be. The party's just moved to Las Vegas. (laughs) The most famous resident of Chaska, Minnesota, is the latest in a long and rather sad line of rock stars who are uh, generally signaling the end of their career by doing a residency in Vegas. You know, it was all over for Elvis once he went there. And in in recent years, Sir Elton, who we were just mocking, Celine Dion, who was certainly never any good to begin with, Barry Manilow. I mean, you expect those kind of people to go to Vegas, but not Prince. Definitely not. He is going to be doing a regular Friday. Friday and Saturday residency 
at the 3121 Jazz Cuisine Club. It's going to be renamed specifically just for him. For him. Part He's going to be doing Fridays and Saturdays in Vegas, folks. It's part of this Rio Hotel Casino, which is just off the Strip. It's I one am, of those big, monstrous, Disney-fied... Prince is one of those guys who you still think is capable of doing very vital work if he wants yeah. to. If he puts his mind to it, he's still capable of not only Both doing Both of us enjoyed his last album. It great was, it was work. A, you don't associate him with people like Celine Dion, Barry Manilow, Elton John. No, I mean, no, no, no. It doesn't compute. You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune, and he's Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. That's a little bit of a track called Organ Donor from an album called Introducing, which many critics, and certainly Greg and I, consider one of the most innovative records in hip-hop, in electronic music, in experimental music, in, in the pop scene period. Absolutely. Over the last decade, the artist is DJ Shadow, a.k.a. Josh Davis, who came by the studio despite the fact that we weren't very kind to his new album. No, we were not uh, very kind to The Outsider, uh, DJ Shadow's third record. Only because, I think, Jim, the standards had been so high that he had set previously. Absolutely. Uh, his work had been so top level. Uh, this record is clearly a notch below it. But you know what? We laid it all on the table. We talked about sampling. We talked about the critical backlash to the record, his influences. And we started out with a discussion of turntablism. A turntablist. You probably hate that term, though, turntablist, don't you? Well, I just don't feel like I'm, I, you know... Well, everybody else was, um, not everybody else, but like turntablists, you know, work very hard at mastering the turntables as an instrument. And so I don't really consider myself a, t- a turntablist, although I can scratch pretty well. But but nothing else seems to fit, Josh. Sampling artist, that sounds awfully pretentious and somewhat inaccurate. Musician? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I always say. When Electronic I, musician? Yeah, when I have to go into... Um, you know, when I fly to another country and I have to fill out a customs form, whenever it says occupation, I just put musician. Well, and, and also the whole idea, the notion of the turntable as as an instrument, it's it's still viewed as somewhat, well, that's, that's an instrument. Obviously, it's an avant-garde instrument in a lot of circles. But you were doing this at a very young age, in, in the 80s, before this was sort of a widespread mainstream kind of thing. You're a white kid, grown up in a burb of, of San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. There couldn't have been a whole lot of... DJ culture at that point around you. What what inspired you to get involved in this in the first place? Just little shreds of um, information that I received from the media about this culture that was brewing on the East Coast called hip hop, and um, it would come in various little shreds and forms. But you know, you'd see little glimpses of people scratching in a couple little uh, videos, like there was a um, Hey DJ by the World Famous Supreme Team, a UTFO video, and so this is all eighty three, eighty four starting to receive this information and um, just from talking to other people about how it's done and hearing how it's done on record, on records like Grandmaster Flash, uh, On the Wheels of Steel, and um, any records that had scratching, it was just like when somebody picked up a guitar Mm. for the first time. They're trying to imitate what they hear on record. Mm -hmm. I was imitating what I was hearing on record. So you you didn't see too much of this going on. You were just kind of hearing these sounds and saying, what would this be like to make this sound? Yeah, in fact, I learned opposite of most other DJs, which simply because I didn't know what was right. I thought it made sense to have the sound come in as my fader hand moved out because it seemed more dynamic that way, Mm -hmm. when in actual fact uh, it's supposed to be the other way around. What fascinated me about rap music wasn't just the scratching. It was the scratching initially and the beats and, and the rap 
all kind of combined. So I was fascinated by synthesizers. I was fascinated by drum machines. Later became fascinated by samplers. So I was intrigued by the whole, by many different aspects of the the genre rather than just scratching. Mm -hmm. Well, and you had an impact on the genre in turn. In in 96, Introducing came out, and uh, your first full-length album, considered just just one of those classics of all time of hip-hop, even just to say hip-hop limits it, uh, electronic music. I mean, I put it up there as, as innovative as anything that Brian Eno ever did. Uh, a sonic voyage through a, a world completely of your creation. It, it only exists in the space between the headphones. kid at that point, right? 20-something? Yeah, I was t- just out of college, so um, 24, I think, when it came out. It had to be It had to be kind of a, a trip to be everybody saying, this is it. This is a new frontier. I mean, that just has to mess with your brain. It's funny because it may seem, I think over time, the hugeness of the record has been amplified a little bit. I mean, at the time when it came out, I was in England where my record label was based, and it came out, and <laughs> Oasis was really huge at that time. So, in any, I mean, so Oasis didn't have paparazzi like the Gallagher no, brothers no. chasing. In it, fact, yeah. the only time it ever even became close to that was there's a little tiny thing in one of the rags over there, and it said something about Noel Gallagher wants to work with DJ Shadow mm. because anything any of those the Gallagher brothers said at that was time news. was was news. So he just happened to mention me somewhere, and it got a little blurb in whatever one of those papers are. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we, should, we should explain, though, Josh, what exactly this record was, because it came out at a time when hip-hop was exploding as a main... I mean, not that it hadn't been a mainstream element for the last two decades, but it seemed like it was everywhere. And, and the art of sampling, to, I think, in a lot of uh, the minds of a lot of people who were hearing this music for the first time was, oh, you take eight bars of this really well-known song Preferably by, by, by Sting, the, by Sting yeah. and then you put a rap over it, and that's all these have to do. I mean, well, I could do that. I could right. go to my bedroom and do that. I mean, well, introducing was seen as this welcome thing by the underground. It's like, wow, here's somebody taking that underground, uh, the idea of the sonic pastiche created by sampling and, and uh, scratching. Sure. There was definitely um, a little bit of that in, I mean, when I was making the record, I was trying to, you know, push the the medium of sampling. I was trying to push the art form. I was trying to um, demonstrate that it's a lot, I, really what I was trying to do was demonstrate that hip-hop is a lot broader than what people think it is. Yeah. Because at that time, it really was about, you know, East Coast versus West Coast, you know, Puffy versus Death Row, and it seemed like there was a lot of good music kind of getting lost in the noise. And so that's what I was kind of trying to bring, you know, forth was just the, you know, the genius of all my, all of my influences kind of congealed into some and then add a little bit of my personality into mm-hmm. it. And I just took it as far as I wanted to go. There was no, I didn't have any um, past, like critical past, really. I didn't have any fan base. I just, I was just off on my own little tangent, sort of I don't think people realize what goes into that, though, because, you know, you talk to, like, the Bomb Squad and Hank Shockley, uh, those late 80s public enemy records. He would talk about, like, taking, like, 40 microcosmic bits mm-hmm. of different records 
and then putting them together literally to create like four bars of music. Yeah. And it was this completely mind-blowing, as Jim said, a pastiche of different elements. How did you work on that record? Was was it similar in, in terms of all this layering and all these little microcosmic samples being sort of wedged together? Um, well, first off, I mean, yeah, you, you touched on the Bomb Squad, which to me those records like uh, Fear of a Black Planet and Nation of Millions by Public Enemy are, are to me still the bar. And, you know, I don't know if it'll ever really be taught. As far as my process, you know, in 92, I decided it was time to get a sampler. I could no longer make records on four-track cassette recorders, which my first few were, but didn't, you know, couldn't afford it. I was making beats and finding samples for a rapper named Paris, who used to be on Tommy Boy Records. And um, I, so I started calling around and asking different people that I had met from being a DJ at KMEO, which is a power station on the West Coast at the time, and just sort of said, look, I, I'm looking for a sampler, but I, w- I don't want to use what everybody else is using. What's the next thing? And so I remember Stretch Armstrong, an influential DJ in New York, saying, well, there's this new thing called an MPC that Akai makes. You should check it out. And I think in the same way that SP-1200s formed the sound of people like DJ Premier and the sound of people like the Bomb Squad, because of the and, you know, Marley Marl, and, you know, it sort of formed a sound. And uh, this instrument that I picked up on a little bit early ended up formulating my sound in the way that I work. And just by the nature of the methodology that goes into using the instrument, it helps shape how you're going to put the songs together and arrange them. But yeah, it was just um, what I was trying to, to champion was the craft of it and, you know, the, the, the craft of kind of like and the discipline of it which was going through a ton of records, uh, finding little moments of brilliance in otherwise maybe (laughs) really mediocre records, or just moments, just accidents, happy accidents on record, and um, try and make something good out of all those happy accidents. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more of our discussion with Josh Davis, otherwise known as DJ Shadow.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're in the middle of our discussion with DJ Shadow, a hip-hop artist who's known for excellent taste in other people's music for his innovative samples. In fact, Josh, uh, when you first came on the scene, there were about a million magazine articles. People were forever dragging you to some old junk store, some dusty record store, record shopping with DJ Shadow. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about record collecting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like uh, I remember seeing Prince Paul on MTV in like 1990, and th- there was a, I remember a clip of him, you know, s- sitting in front of a wall of records and, and saying, you know, you can find a sample on anything, and he, without looking, he pulled out a record, and it happened to be the Mickey Mouse Club March record that Mike Curb did, <laughs> which I know has a break, and he knows has a break, so he put it right on the break beat, yeah. but he could have chosen any record and. People want to ride along and see what the digging culture is about and see what the sampling culture is about. But I've always tried to be the first to say, look, it doesn't matter how many records you have. Yeah. It doesn't matter how, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter whether you live in a dusty basement. It doesn't, none of that really matters. It's just that I find something karmic in the fact that, you know, there was a store in Sacramento near where I lived where in the process of working on introducing, whenever I got stuck, I would go down in this basement, and in the process, it was sort of like, what's going to come to me? Mm-hmm. You know, what I find was meant to be, and thus was meant to be sampled, and, and you know, it would always get me out of whatever jam I was in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's a zen exercise. Yeah. You know, Josh, we were talking a little bit about the whole idea of sampling. What I was curious about is how difficult has it been to sample in the sort of post-Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique era? Because obviously there was a lot of issues there with, you know, getting the licensing for these samples. Uh, initially, it was a kind of a, a wild, wild west scenario right. where everything was kind of fair game. Then these artists started getting sued, and it became increasingly difficult. Hey, you got to pay to use these samples. Um, how's it been for you to, to be a sampling artist in this area where it's become a little bit more pricey to, yeah. to sample well-known records? Obviously. It's interesting. As you were talking, I was just thinking it's similar in some respects to a lot of uh, internet frontiers in in terms of something like YouTube, where right now it is a Wild West frontier. There was an MTV news story about sampling that I would record. I would always record any time hip-hop was in the media, because it was usually really biased and stuff. <laughs> so they went and they interviewed their heroes, being people like Steve Winwood, Tom Petty. And so you had these very strange, antiquated uh, mm-hmm. thoughts going on about sampling, and it it, it was... Very odd, and I remember my parents watching it and going, yeah, yeah. And then they would have somebody like the Beastie Boys on, or they'd have um, you know, people speaking from the other side. And um, It was very interesting to see how it was all being played out in public view. But um, in terms of, you know, is it possible to still make records like Paul's Boutique? I think the answer is yes, but you, you just, you have to... Um, use different things. I mean, you can't use cool... You know, in 1989, it was... You didn't hear Cool and the Gang funky stuff on the radio. I mean, people don't really understand. Like, I, you, it was impossible to hear James Brown on the radio for years and years and years. He just... Yeah. You didn't hear that sort of funk disco era at all because people were, had gotten sick of it and were, you know, moved on to, you know, the Minneapolis sound and then the, uh, the you know, and then into hip-hop and, and it was just sort of forgotten. So what people were doing in the Paul's Boutique era was trying to bring, you know, part of it was look at these obscure records we found, but also remember these great records. But you can't just get stuck in using these famous, you know, records that were actually top 20, top 10. Although a large strain of hip-hop did. 
Sure, sure. As if that's the only thing you could build a track from. Right. But then people like DJ Premier, Large Professor Pete Rock took the mantle and ran with it and went, okay, but then there's more. There's right, more right. and there's more. And hey, that, that beat's great, but check out this beat. Mm-hmm. And this sample's really unique. And and th- that was the mentality. I tried to just sort of go on exponentially from there. You know, now you kind of go on you, you, 10 years down the line and uh, the samples that I cleared on this record, uh, my new album, includes such uh, famous names as the Bentleys. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, what's another one? Um, Cecilia plus or minus. <laughs> now you're getting into, and and not only are they not funk records, but they're sort of, you know, late or early 80s, no wave records. And yeah. Just, you know, off the beaten path again. Stuff that I feel like other people are not choosing to look at. In the beginning, well, I did know. That brings us nicely to the outsider because you've you've uh, given people curveball with your third full album. Uh, it's not what people suspected, and now everybody's giving you crap. You, you were supposed to make uh, introducing part three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how yeah. dare you? How mm-hmm. dare you surprise us with a different record? Yeah, I um, I gotta admit, I I, I may need some time to kind of uh, sift out all the all the the. Um, the feedback and, and make sense of it. But I think that, I think, well, I don't know. Do you have anything you want to, before I kind of go off on a tangent, do you, <laughs> no. is there anything you want to? <laughs> no, lay, lay it, lay it on. on. That's the question. They got you, they got you lay on, it on. The, you're the bug in the insect tray and the pin and you're, you know, they're just skewering you on the, on the outsider for not being what they thought DJ Shadow was. Yeah. And which all, you know, right away you kind of go, well, you know, I made the record to define who I am. Well, obviously, people are fixated on the image of me with a hood over my head in the basement of a record store, you know, happily and and mellow vibe, looking through records, whatever, making this really non-threatening instrumental music that that can will go down really nicely in a hair salon or whatever. <laughs> and I sat there and I was like, well, wait a minute, that's not somehow something got something happened somewhere because that's not who I am, and I don't. I you know I listen to contemporary music. I don't just listen to the past. I think that's really important, and that's something I learned early on from reading a lot of interviews with people like John Peel, who were saying, you know, why should I champion something that's thirty years old when there's people in bands now that are wondering why nobody's giving them the time of day or the attention they deserve? So to me, it's like a balance. You know what I mean? It's like learn from the past but champion the future. And to me, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, driving around, everybody's really excited about the hyphy movement because it looks forward and it's, you know, there's something happening in the Bay for the first time since Tupac was killed. Hello, Bay Area, let's go! Keep 
pen and a pen paper. Crying leg green like in the end, no biscuit. Got a star struck, ain't turf, man. Look at these chicks. We need three. Turf, 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 So, um, that was a natural, you know, kind of direction to go in, and I think that, but, you know, again, there's only three of those types of songs on this record, Mm -hmm. and um, one of the things I was going to say as well is I think that one thing that's very clear to me is that terrestrial media gives so much weight to the internet because they're intimidated by the internet. They feel like if you ignore what you know if you google my name and you read the first few blogs people will just be like oh that's it that's what people think of the record yeah you know what i mean and it's just like what are you saying you know what i mean like that go come to any of my shows you know what i mean like well the reality of that is it's some kid who's living in his parents house uh Mm -hmm. you know with a computer and he's spouting his opinions and suddenly he's a tastemaker right it's it's ain't it cool gone wrong yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> and it's, you know, I'm not going to make music by committee. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's one thing I tried to make very clear to my own fan base, like, starting almost two years ago was like, you know, look, you guys, um, I'm glad you like all these records. and But guess what? The, you know, because I was starting to do things without samples. I was leaving breadcrumbs for a few years, <laughs> ever since the private press came out, because I knew I didn't want to make another sample-based record. And so I started experimenting with doing stuff without samples and leaving little breadcrumbs. And granted, they weren't, like, intended to be these mass-consumed major label efforts. They were just little things. But, you know, when people were starting to kind of grumble, I was like, well, look, I got to go at my own pace and explore music and my, my, my passions on my own kind of schedule. And um, and And I can't really... I love you guys, but I can't worry about what you think. I have to just do what I do. And surely you want me to do that, don't you? Yeah. Would be, you know. But um, sure, there's going to be people who only know introducing and love that record, and they're going to hear a couple songs in this record and go, well, well, wait a minute, this isn't what I bargained for. And I, But, I, you know, every hero I've ever had that's a lifer, whether it be James Brown or Neil Young or Lou Reed or any of those people, have had to at certain times go, you know what? I'm glad you like, you know, mashed potatoes and, and, and I'm <laughs> glad you like the stuff I did with Crosby and Stills and, and Young or, or I mean, and Nash, but, or whatever, you know what I mean? Whatever yeah. little hole or I'm glad you like what we I did with the Velvet Underground, but I have to do this now. Yeah. It's time for a metal machine music. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, and you might go, well, what is this? But ultimately what it is, is somebody saying, I need some wiggle room. I'm I'm trying to explore. I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to evolve. And you're just going to have to ride with me for a little while. I feel like doing a record like The Outsider, which is the, the new record, is is probably the, you know, the riskiest thing I could have done, but I feel like it's necessary. It all goes back to something I wrote on a piece of paper in 1989, which was hip-hop reconstructions from the ground up. That's always been my motto. And if it's pertinent and relevant in 96 for it to sound like introducing, then that's what it's going to sound like. If it's relevant in 2006 for it to sound like The Outsider, in my opinion, then that's what it's going to sound like. Yeah, It all has to do with taking hip-hop as an art form and articulating to people that it's bigger than what they think it is and, mm. and trying to offer a new spin and a new... Um, 
take on it and, you know. Well, um, for that matter, just substitute DJ Shadow for hip-hop, DJ Shadow Reconstruction. I mean, I saw the, <laughs> uh, the quote that you gave in, in one interview in the English press is, I, I didn't want to be in a box. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Valid for any artist. Yeah, and right now we're in the resistance phase. I can only hope that it gets better, but at the same time, I can't, I can't just sort of pull the blanket over my head and go, I'll just come out in three years. I have <laughs> yeah. to, you know, I have to keep, you know, that's why I'm on the road. And, you know, I'm playing to the biggest, most vocal, passionate audiences I've ever played for in my life. But, you know, there's another side of it, which is that like Robert Altman, like Woody Allen, like Spike Lee, I need to make enough to make the next one. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's tricky because I feel like the record's underperforming. I'm on a major label and you know how it goes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every time you do another album, your advance is a little bit bigger and they kind of sit there and do the math and go, well, we're seeing a downward trend here. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so... And the other part of it is they've even, you know, my label in England has often said to me, well, we keep you around because you attract other artists. <laughs> that, that there's a vote of confidence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the heritage artists, about it, watch out, you know. And I kind of go, well, that's that's nice, but wouldn't it be nice if we, I, I don't really think of myself that way. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's a common misconception is that people think I don't want to sell records. And it's like, of course I want to sell records. I want to reach as many people as possible. We want to thank our guest DJ Shadow for sitting down with us this week on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Uh, we're going to be back in a minute with reviews of records from Lindsey Buckingham and Lady Sovereign, plus my Desert Island jukebox pick. Back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Lindsey Buckingham covering Donovan's Try for the Sun on uh, Buckingham's new solo album, Under the Skin. 
heartbreak, it is hard to be Lindsey Buckingham, aside <laughs> from the you know part where he's worth $50 million or something. As the sonic architect of Rumors and Tusk, two of the best-selling albums you know of all time, Buckingham is kind of renowned as this guy who is the modern master of the wall of sound, the, the incredibly lush pop assault, and uh, the man most responsible for keeping Fleetwood Mac at the top of the charts for so long, the guy behind the scenes. Might have been the girls that got the attention, might have been Mick Fleetwood that had the band named after him, but Buckingham was the one that breathed new life into that group and made them superstars. In recent years, whenever he's tried to make a solo album, all of these forces around him, including his sometimes Fleetwood Mac bandmates and the record company, Warner Brothers, you know, say to him, that, that'd really be good on a Fleetwood Mac album. What do you say? So, so you know, there was one solo tour in 92 was the last one where he put out an album called Out of the Cradle, which was very much in that sonic wall of sound mode. And he toured with a guitar army. That was his phrase. No fewer than seven additional axe slingers besides <laughs> himself replicating the sound on stage. What he's wanted to do for a very long time, apparently, is make a very stripped down completely completely opposite album to go in the studio to focus on acoustic guitar and the songwriting not the big wall of sound he had started writing some of these songs some of them date back to before Fleetwood Mac's last album in 1997 The Dance once again he started recording them he got pulled into making a Fleetwood Mac album instead um, but this time when he was doing the tours that followed he took a, a four track recorder on the road with him and he recorded a lot of this stuff in hotel rooms at night as he went along. As a result, this is a uh, a very kind of indie rock sounding record. A Elliot Smith, Nick Drake sounding Fleetwood Buckingham record. Uh, not at all what one would expect from Lindsey Buckingham. We're going to play a, a song here, one of the originals, called Shut Us Down. It's from the new Lindsey Buckingham album, Under the Skin on Sound Opinions. Buckingham, a track called Shut Us Down from his uh, solo record. He makes them about once a decade. It's called 
<laughs> Under the Skin. I wish he would make more, Jim, because I think the three solo records he has made in the each of the last three decades has outstripped anything he's done with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Um, and, and that's no diss on Fleetwood Mac necessarily. I just think he pours his eccentricity and his weirdness, which is so essential to understanding Lindsey Buckingham, into his solo records, whereas with Fleetwood Mac... It's always about okay. We gotta buff things out a little bit. Please, the, the rest yeah. of these people in the Everything band. Everything gets smoothed out. Yeah, I don't why, know why does he hang out with those other guys? <laughs> because they make lots of money. I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Buckingham on his own is not nearly the uh, name brand that Fleetwood Mac is, but artistically, I think he's testing himself in a way that few artists. No, that's true. Uh, I mean, but he played here two nights at the Park mm-hmm. West, which is a very nice Chicago venue, but uh, capacity like eight fifty or a thousand. Yep. Versus Fleetwood Mac was through how many times the arenas here? Uh, countless Four times. Four or and five and, on and that so, tour. And sold out shows at uh, massive hockey arenas. Yeah, you know, yeah. he can't play those size dates as a solo act. Under the Skin is a uh, initially kind of an off-putting record. I mean, he's, his voice is sort of breathy and subdued, just barely above a whisper. Tons of reverb on it. There's that incredibly intricate finger-picking going on underneath it. Almost no percussion on this record. Mm. It is very much of its own, a mood piece from beginning to end. And if you're into the mood, it's, it, it can take you places. And if you're not, you're immediately put off on it and go, what is this? This doesn't really sound like anything I can sort of latch onto in the Fleetwood Mac uh, a catalog, much less Lindsey Buckingham's own uh, solo recordings. You know, I admire the guy so much for attempting something like this at this stage of his career. He's just completely gone off into his own world and done something really fascinating. There's a lot of turmoil going on in these songs. That song, Shut Us Down, I can't help but thinking of that as a an open letter to Stevie Nicks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship broken down. He said, you know, I'm still going to leave the door open for us in terms of, you know, having this friendship, even though what I did to you Decades ago, wasn't that nice? Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff in this record, and there's a lot of this kind of turmoil uh, which, bubbling I mean, underneath I, the surface. Don't you think you ought to be over it by now? You would think. I so. mean, rumors in '77 was he, all about they were, you know, they're I, breaking up. And I think the instability that seems to come through in Buckingham when he when he gives an interview, when he's at a live performance, there's always you get the sense that this guy is always troubled and always thinking things through seven or eight times and yeah. figuring things out all the time, and he's never completely settled. But but that at the same time makes really fascinating art. No, I did interview him on this album, and uh, you know he's talking a lot about how he's realized what's important in life because he now has three children. He he is remarried. He met this woman in 2000 and they're married and they have kids and now he realizes what's important and you feel oh well that's you know that's really very kind of neat and inspiring and then you go listen to his song like like shut us down and you're like wow he's still on some fragile ice there some thin ice but i i think there's something cool about him showing his insecurities and his precarious grasp on uh, on happiness in such honesty and it it is a very honest record it's a very uh, effective record i don't think it's it's a by all means like rush out and buy it record it's a quiet unassuming record if you're a fleetwood mac fan well i don't know i mean you may hate it because it's so not what fleetwood mac is totally different from anything Fleetwood. i I guess there are fleetwood mac fans and then there are also buckingham fans Mm -hmm. and that's a small crowd but i do think it's something you ought to burn and at least sample and maybe you'll find some common ground there all right, Jim, so on the patented Sound Opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it, trash it. That's a burn it record for you. And I have a similar stand on this record, too. It's one of those records that I think you really have to spend a little bit of time with before you can really make up your mind as to whether or not this is something you really want to own. So uh, it's, it's a burn it record for me. Yeah, it's officially the biggest midget in the game. I don't know. Fuck 
That's Love Me or Hate Me from the debut album from Lady Sovereign. It's called Public Warning. Who is Lady Sovereign? She's a 20-year-old native of London, born Louise Harmon. She is a, uh, as she says at the outset of that song, it's officially the biggest midget in the game. She's not exaggerating. <laughs> she's barely five feet one inches tall. She's a tiny little thing uh, with a little sideways ponytail. And she emerged in the London, rough and tumble London grime scene when she was a mere 15 years of age. When she showed up on stage to perform her songs, the audiences were aghast. They were wondering, who is this little tiny white chick getting up there daring to perform hip-hop songs. Mm. Uh, she was, uh, it was kind of one of those show-and-prove moments for, for Lady Saab, and, and she, she says that it took her a while to really get comfortable with the whole idea of performing on stage. She seems to have lost whatever stage fright she has ever had, and in her songs you see a lot of attitude. You see a girl growing into a woman and uh, very much taking a stance that is the equal of any of her testosterone-driven counterparts in the London grime scene. That scene that has produced people like Mike Skinner of The Streets and Dizzy Rascal. Lady Sav is the first, however, from that scene to be signed to a big major label record deal in the United States. She's certainly the first white female MC to sign a major label deal in the U.S. And Jay-Z signed her. Jay-Z, no less yeah. than Jay-Z, has signed her to this deal. And the big speculation was that Jay-Z said, I got to get me a feminine. <laughs> Wanted a, a white female rapper, a feminine. I just love that concept. Well, it's a fascinating idea, only that Eminem has never evinced a particular fondness for the uh, opposite gender in his music. Mm. Uh, and and and. Lady Sav music is all about speaking up for the uh, oppressed females, the the people that are oppressed in Eminem songs, basically. So her debut record is just out now. I, I would have to say, Jim, one of the most anticipated hip-hop releases of the last year. People have been uh, talking uh, about her stuff on the Internet yeah, for Yeah, a long, long time, years. because she had several hit singles in, in London, and it's like, where's the album? Where's the album? So basically she was touring and, and playing in front of big audiences who already knew her music, festivals like the Intonation Festival Lollapalooza. and Lollapalooza, even before this record came out. Now Public Warning is here, and let's hear a track from it. Hoodie, it's from Lady Sovereign on Sound Opinions. For a second I'll be the fashion police And I'm just looking at your gums You've been on too many catalogs Sprees with your granny fat curtain designs You're hurting my eyes You really should revise your dress sense Before you walk on by I'm kind of mixed up in this disco inferno Baggy jeans and a tight top Lemonade and pain on me Sticking out like a sore thumb I ain't concerned
Yes, that's Lady Sovereign. Make way for the SOV. Uh, the song is called Hoodie. A really neat track there, Greg. I mean, that's an, you know, you can't help but love that single. It's got attitude. She's got spirit and fire and sass to burn. It's got that killer kind of uh, sing-songy hook, which is very ska from the cheesier end of right. the post-punk era. You know, something like Madness, you know, yep. uh, as opposed to the English beat. I wish there were more moments like that on this record. I think we've been waiting so long for Lady Sovereign's debut. And... It's good, but it's not great. I, I, was, I was expecting more. I talked to her as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's more fun to talk to or to see perform live than she is throughout this record because it, it wears a little thin uh, after a time. The story is that she stole her mother's salt and pepper album on cassette <laughs> and that's how at uh, at the age of 10 she fell in love with hip-hop and uh, she began rapping and at first she was afraid to do it in front of anybody I wish there was a little more of that I mean salt and pepper is a great great influence that never gets mentioned anymore mm-hmm. so to be talking to this 20 year old English woman and having her say you know that's what I wanted to do that sex positive and yet self-empowered attitude I wish there was a little more of that on here as it is it's a it's a burn it record and she's an important voice but I, I think that we waited so long for her album to come out, she wound up being eclipsed by Lily Allen, who is not a rapper, but I think does that attitude even better. Yeah, I think you're right. The internet sort of helped her career, and it also kind of set the scale so high that almost any record she could put out after after all the buzz started building about her was going to be somewhat of a letdown. And this record is kind of a letdown, I have to say. I, I wish she had included some of those early singles on here. Uh, yeah. I, I talked to her about that, and she says, oh, that's that's so two years ago. And I guess in the <laughs> hip-hop world, two years ago might as well be you know your parents or your grandparents. Well, um, she's been waiting for this album to come out longer than some rappers have had a career. And this record was originally scheduled to come out last fall, but for whatever reason, the record company said, oh, let's work on it some more, let's let's sit on this a little bit longer, and I do think they sort of sucked the juice out of what Lady Sob was all about. I think she was all about 2005, you know, that's when this record should have been out, and she should be on to her new thing now. Instead, we're just now hearing yeah. her debut record. Some of the new tracks are not as good as the old singles were, there's a certain sense of letdown. But I agree with you. I think she's an important voice. She's a lot of fun. Every song has got a, a, a sort of a little catchy hook to it, a little melody to it that you can sing. On the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, it, it's, a, it's a burn it, unfortunately. I, I'd love to give it a buy it recommendation. The singles are great. Yeah, but I think this is an artist. She's only 20 years old. I think we've yeah. got a lot to look forward to here with Lady Sovereign. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Each week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I takes a turn and pops a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, choosing one track we couldn't live without. Greg, what have you got for us? Well, Jim, uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking since we had that segment about Elton John. We're dissing Elton for good reason. I mean, he's up on stage throwing a hissy fit about a mediocre album. If I um, ever hear Candle in the Wind again, <laughs> I'm, that's it. I'm, I'm jumping off the pier. There has been some saccharine stuff coming out of the Elton John songwriting juggernaut in the last couple of decades. But yeah, at 30 one, years, maybe. Yeah, but at one time... <laughs> Elton John was on top of the world. I mean, there was a 15-year stretch there where he, you know, had a top 10 single every year, and with good reason. The other other thing I wanted to bring out, this new album, The Captain and the Kid that he's got out, is a sequel to Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, which Elton and his songwriting partner, Bernie Taupin, generally consider their best 
beginning to end album. It was conceived as an album with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It told a story of those two going through the early days of the uh, the music industry. But I beg to differ. I do not think it is by any stretch the best beginning to end album that uh, Elton John and Bernie Taupin conceived. I think their best concept record mm. was uh, Tumbleweed Connection, the second album from Elton John that was released in uh, 1971. I think this is when Toppin and John were at the top of their game. Toppin, I think, can be a very, very frustrating lyricist. I mean, you listen to some of the lyrics in Elton John's songs, and you go, huh? What? <laughs> Why? You know? Uh, I mean, think about that line, if I was a sculptor, but then again, no. I mean, I, what? See, I'm not huh? a fan at all. I don't, I don't, I've never gotten Elton. I never will get Elton. I get Elton in small doses, and i got to say, Tumbleweed Connection does it for me. Toppin's lyrics were at the very top of their game, and I think one of the reasons was that he was so engaged in the topic. He had this fascination with the American West. He was an Englishman who was completely fascinated about the American frontier, and he is indeed the brown dirt cowboy. That's why he had that name, you know, in that album. But I think he was much more successful at that concept here in Tumbleweed Connection. This is also the early days of John's collaboration, not only with Bernie Toppin, but with Gus Dudgeon, the key producer on all those classic 70s Elton singles, and Paul Buckmaster as the arranger. So you had these key people in key places on this very early album, and he was also coming off listening to a heavy period where he was listening to the band's music from Big Pink. So you can hear Mm. some of those connections (laughs) in this record as well. But what was he wearing? Was this during the duck costume or the big glasses? This is another key point, Jim. This was pre-duck costume album. This is when he was still talking about being an artist and and, and sort of making music that he was influenced by. Elton never really had an original idea. Neither did Bernie Taupin, but they did a great job of ripping people off, and in this case, they were ripping off the band. And and they did a a decent job of it. I think one of the best songs that they ever wrote together was the track Where To Now, St. Peter, which is basically a song about a character floating down a river and realizing his life is about to end. Apparently, he's he's shot, although it's not quite clear from the lyric, but some kind of frontier justice has been done, and he's facing the afterlife. Elton John brings it all home here with this track, which I think is one of the more thoughtful Bernie Taupin lyrics. Elton at the top of his game as a piano player as well as a vocalist. I mean, a very underrated vocalist. He was hitting some falsetto notes back then on this record that he can't get to now. And uh, a kind of an existential song, you know? This lazy life is short. And, and here he is facing the last few minutes of his life on a song called Where To Now, St. Peter from Tumbleweed Connection on Sound Opinions.
Where to now, St. Peter? I swear that's revenge for me inflicting Genesis upon you last <laughs> week. But I'm, Genesis was cooler than Elton. I'm sorry. Oh, I don't know. Peter Gabriel Genesis, maybe. But you didn't play Peter Gabriel Genesis, did you? I, I'm, I'm no, you didn't. No, I'm through, sorry. I can't go there, my man. Up through, and then there were three. Genesis was good. What, what have we got next week, Mr. Cod? Next week, Jim, we have a show that uh, you and I are both excited about because this is one of the key bands in punk rock. Perubu, a live performance and an interview with the frontman of Perubu, David Thomas. That's next week on Sunday. You know, a year ago, before we started on public radio, if somebody would have one day told us, someday, <laughs> in the space of only a couple of months, Mission of Burma, John Cale of Velvet Underground, and Perubu will all come and perform at your request. It's like the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, <laughs> all in one place. Unbelievable. We have somebody to thank for that. Tori Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel is our our producer. Our associate producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. We get technical help from Joe Dassault. We get legal assistance from Dino Armiros. Engineering help from Mary Gaffney. And Jim Russell is our man at American Public Media, who, in the wake of the KFED-Britney split, has been linked to, to one of them. I'm not sure which. K- KFED's been calling, wondering if he can get on the show now. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, let's not do that. 